All right, you're now tuned in to the follow-through with Clips and Drew, the True Players Podcast, episode 153, and we have a special one for you today. Alex Kennedy joins us. He's been covering the NBA for the past 15 years. You've seen his work in Bleacher Report and Sports Illustrated, ESPN, Hoops Hype, and now he's part of our family at BasketballNews.com. We talk about his career. We talk about the NBA playoffs and everything NBA. This is such an awesome podcast. We hope you guys enjoy. Drew, kick that intro music. Excuse me, I didn't mean to interrupt like Mount Vesuvius. I'm about due to erupt. Use it or I'm losing it. They say I need to loosen up. Tight, I'm well taught. I must do the max like Ludi us. I do have something to say, so you got to give it up. Give it up. You never heard What up, podcast world? What's up, everybody? You know what it is. You know where you're at. It is the follow-through with Clips and Drew, the True Players Podcast, episode 153, and we got a special one for you today. We have our boy Alex Kennedy, who's joining us on the show. He is the chief content uh, officer at basketballnews.com. He's been with Hoops Hype, Bleacher Report, USA Today. He's been featured on ESPN, Sports Illustrated. This guy knows his basketball. Alex, welcome to the show, man. I can't wait to talk hoops with you. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. How are you guys doing? I'm living the dream. Drew needs a haircut. That's all I know. Drew needs to get a serious haircut. I do. Yeah. Mine's bad. I do too. No, no, no issue there, Drew. We're in the same boat here. I, had, I haven't had a haircut since January, and <laughs> uh, I just ordered some clippers to the house. So I, I'm, we're going to do one of the do-it-yourself haircuts. My girlfriend has a very shaky <laughs> That's what hands are for. So no, no worries. Exactly. That's, that's why I rock the hat. But I want to I I mention something, Clips. You said you're living the dream. I think you're living the nightmare, buddy, because you are still talking over about here, this? I'm living the dream. <laughs> Anthony Davis, last second, three-point shot against not the Clippers. That's a pretty big dream for me. We're going to talk about that later, Drew. This is, we're, <laughs> we're talking to Alex, okay? So, uh, you know, Alex, you don't look a day over 21. How have you been covering the NBA for 15 years? Uh, I, I, read, I read something that you were credentialed at 14. So tell me a little bit about how you started, and basically what you've been doing your whole career. Yeah, I've had a weird journey. Um, when I was 14 years old, uh, I started writing for a few different websites like Real GM. And uh, basically, an, uh, one other writer at Real GM got credentials at the time, and they covered a Golden State Warriors game. And I remember they did an interview with Speedy Claxton, and I was like, that's amazing. How did this guy who writes on the same team that I'm on get a chance to interview an NBA player? So I started thinking about it, and uh, I'm based in Florida. So I reached out to the Orlando Magic, and I basically told them, you know, I want to see if this is a career path that – I want to pursue and I would love to come cover a practice, a shoot around a game. Just let me in the building. I, I, I'm paying, you know, I would pay money to be there. So if I can get in for free, that's amazing. And then they responded and they said, yeah, you can come cover a game. Basically they would let me come to games where there wasn't much visiting media. So it'd usually be like a smaller market team that people didn't really care about, or it was like, you know, around a holiday where the writers just didn't want to be there. So they had extra credentials and they actually told me that uh, it's kind of funny and embarrassing looking back now, but they said I could come to the game, but I had to bring a chaperone. So my dad would literally come to the games with me. And look, thinking back now, it's pretty mortifying. And, you know, I, inter I, I met players that I still know today in that, you know, <laughs> with uh, my dad, like right nearby. So it's pretty <laughs> embarrassing, but um, it was just cool. I was glad I was able to be at the games. And I learned those first few years, I really just watched what other reporters and journalists did in the locker room. You know, I was 
really not wanting to be the annoying kid that was talking too much and bothering people and hurting them from doing their job. So I try to just kind of learn. And um, a lot of journalists were really cool and like, you know, helped me. Um, someone like Brian Winhurst was always really friendly. He was one of the youngest beat writers in the NBA. Um, so I think he kind of knew what it was like to be the young person in the room. Not 14, but, you know, he was always younger. So he was always super friendly. Brian Schmitz from the Orlando Sentinel was always so helpful and uh, would always help me and kind of give me pointers. Uh, Jared Rudolph was another one that was really friendly. So I kind of learned those first few years. And then once I was around 18 years old, I started meeting a lot of players, you know, meeting a lot of agents, executives, getting closer with the players. And then uh, I started breaking news. And that's how I was able to kind of make a name for myself and get hired by some of these other places. So I got hired by a website called Hoops World when I was 18. And that was my first paying gig. And then from there, yeah, I've been able to take it and go to some different websites. And I always say I was just really fortunate to know what I wanted to do at a young age. I, I knew I loved sports. I knew I was nowhere near good enough to play in the NBA. So I was like, yeah, I'll write about it. So the passion was for the writing or for basketball? Like which, which one were you more passionate about? It was writing, or I'm sorry, it was basketball initially. I just knew I wanted to be around the sport because I loved playing it. And I was constantly watching it, obsessing over it, uh, especially like free agency. I love transactions. So I love the CBA and free agency and the trade deadline. And that's actually, you know, early on, that was one of the things that um, made me really want to get into this. I, I had a whole like spreadsheet of agent and like player and executive phone numbers. And I was constantly reaching out and trying to just, as a fan being curious, you know, part of it was, this is my job and I want to be able to report news and, and break stuff. Cause that's a huge rush and it's a lot of fun. But part of it was also just curiosity. And I'm thinking, you know, just like, I'm sure you guys were free agency. It's so exciting to see where guys are going to land and what's going to happen. So I was wanting that information and being the one that was putting it out there and getting to know it first. So it was initially basketball. And then I eventually fell in love with the journalism side of it. You know, I fell in love with writing and then the news breaking process. And then and more recently it's been, podcasting and all that kind of stuff. So, uh, and social media, I, I love social media. So it's, it started with, you know, basketball and just wanting to be around sports and then kind of developed into this being just my dream job from all different angles. You said that uh, you got a rush when you were breaking news. What was the first story you broke that you remember that you're like, Oh, this is, this is my story. I'm breaking it. Yeah. It's so minor, but it's funny. Uh, <laughs> I remember CJ Watson, he was on the Golden State Warriors and, you know, I had become close with his camp and him. And uh, I remember he was talking about what he was going to do in free agency. And I did an interview with him and then we kind of kept in touch afterwards. And I was talking to people in his camp and kind of, I remember he signed a qualifying offer with the Golden State Warriors. So that was the first one where I put something out there. And then because it was actually, you know, it wasn't like a rumor. It was actually something that happened where he signed the qualifying offer. It got picked up by different outlets and, you know, people were asking me to come on radio shows and all this. And I was, I think I was 18 years old. So I was just freaking out. I couldn't believe it was actually happening. Um, so that was, I think that was the first one that actually got any kind of traction. Um, but yeah. And then, you know, from there it was, I think once you start breaking news, other agents and players realize, oh, okay, you're talking to a lot of different people and suddenly they take your call. Suddenly they, you know, will, and you can sometimes trade information, which is something that happens a lot where, you know, the, the top newsbreakers of the world, the Woj, uh, Shams, Chris Haynes, those guys, you know, it's a lot of trading information. The reason executives sometimes take their call is because they can tell you, oh yeah, this team's talking about shopping this guy, or I just heard this. So it's a lot of trading information too. So I kind of learned that game early on. And, and there's also, it, it's very stressful too. There's agents that will use you and give you false information. And you have to really have a good filter, uh, be able to filter out what's real, what's not, who has an agenda. And I, I talk about this, I've said this in my podcast, but I kind of wish that some of that stuff, 
I was able to learn not so publicly uh, because, you know, I was 18 years old putting stuff out there and, you know, there, there's some things where it ended up being wrong or I found out later an agent was using me. So some of that stuff was frustrating, but um, it was a huge rush when you're, you're breaking news and uh, getting that information. So there has to be some kind of like trust that the players have with you. What do you think that takes for a certain play? Cause there's a lot of media, like I, I, I look at Russell Westbrook and I'm like, that's gotta be the most difficult man to get information out of or interview or anything like that. And a lot of players don't like the media in general. Like, what do you think is the most important um, uh, trait to have for players to trust players and agents and, and, and GMs to trust you to give you that information? Yeah, that's a really good question. I think the prior relationship's important. Um, it's funny, I, whenever I tried interviewing Russell Westbrook, I think he was in his second or third year in the league. We had no relationship. I literally just asked a PR person in OKC if I could have a few minutes with him. And uh, he walked over and I asked him, you know, I think three or four questions. And every single answer, he gave me a one word answer. And then I realized, okay, this isn't going to go anywhere. It's literally happening every question. So I was like, okay, thanks for your time. And he goes, good talk and walk away. <laughs> so if you don't know the guy, it can be very difficult to get anything out of them, especially someone like Russ or, you know, Rondo guys who hate the media because they've been criticized a lot. Or when they were coming up through the draft process, people were saying they should be, they're going to be a bust or why they should slip in the draft. Some of these guys, I totally understand why they hate the media. And I probably would too, if I were in their shoes, if, you know, you're just trying to go out there and achieve your dream and make as much money as possible and, you know, succeed in the NBA and people are criticizing you. That can be really frustrating, especially when, you know, you're really young like that. So I get why some of these guys hate the media. I think you develop that over time. So again, you know, getting to know a guy, one thing that really helped me was, because I was so young, I was at the same age as a lot of the guys when they were entering the league in the draft process. So if they were at the combine, for example, and it was, okay, I can talk to this fellow 19, 20 year old, or I can talk to this 45 year old who can't really relate to me. And, you know, we're not really speaking the same language there. You know, it, it was, it was definitely something that helped me early on. And I've made an effort to go out and meet the guys that were the top high school prospects. And uh, I would go out to all the training sites every off season. So I'd be out at impact basketball in Vegas IMG Academy in Florida, you know, all the different training sites I can get into because, you know, you get to meet, you get to know those guys really well in those candid conversations and away from the locker room. And then when you do run into them during the season, you're not just reporter number 20 who's in the middle of a scrum. They know you and they've hung out with you away from the game and away from the locker room. So that was something that really helped me. And I feel like over time, guys got to know, okay, first of all, I'm not out to get them and you know, twist their words and, and try to trick them, which you do see. I've seen that in locker rooms where I'm literally standing there for the interview and a guy asks a question. And then whenever you actually see the guy tweet it out or write an article, it's totally taken out of context or they're basically just trying to trick the guy to get a few clicks. And then the players, of course, never going to trust them again, but they're not really caring about that. They just want that one story. So I think that's part of it too. You know, guys are going to trust you. Um, there's been guys where literally they'll tell me something and I've gotten to know them and we've known each other for a few years. Uh, I've known them since they were in high school and now they're going through the pre-draft process and they say something that I know for a fact will hurt their stock and not look good to GMs. And I'll tell them, I'm like, look, you know, you probably won't want to say that to another reporter because I'm going to give you this advice and scratch that, but someone else would run with that. And that would be the headline. And that's going to be the only thing that gets picked up. So it's, it's, you know, it's something that happens over time, I think, but it's also the way you approach the job. Again, if you're one of those guys that are trying to trick guys and, and you know, get them in trouble, then you're going to lose that respect, not only of that player, but other players that see the story and kind of put two and two together. 
So I, I think uh, something that happened recently was in the Clippers series with um, the Nuggets. Michael Porter Jr. had that um, post-game press conference that got a lot of notoriety, right, about his comments, um, about the way that Denver was playing. And the, the reason I'm bringing this up is because you've been in these locker rooms. The point that um, I got from this, from, from Michael Porter's statements, was that that should definitely not have been said to the media uh, I'm curious if you had a take on maybe what that what something like that does in a locker room setting, right? I mean, especially now, I mean, granted, the Nuggets won. <laughs> and, you know, I don't think the information that he divulged was incorrect. I think the timing and the place was wrong. But how does that experience uh, kind of unfold in a locker room? Yeah, for sure. With the Michael Porter Jr. one, it's interesting because I, I always have a hard time. You know, I always see guys get criticized a ton when they say something like that and you have fellow players chiming in and everyone's kind of weighing in and you have to remember these guys are talking 15 20 minutes after a really emotional loss he's in his second NBA season so he's not someone that's constantly doing these interviews and understands what you can and cannot say so I don't know I, I kind of I understand that guys slip up in those situations sometimes because of the circumstances surrounding it um, and what he was saying, we, uh, it's funny, Nikias Duncan, who writes for us at basketballnews.com, wrote an article about that. And what he was saying wasn't wrong. I mean, he really probably should have been more involved. It's just the way that he went about it. And like you're saying, a lot of players see that and they think, why are you saying this to the media? This should be something that should be, you know, kept behind closed doors. Don't air your dirty laundry. Go to the coach and go to your teammates and say it, but don't talk to the media about it because that looks like you're just throwing guys under the bus and being all about me, me, me. So I get both sides of it because, again, I, I think it's a tough situation to put guys in right after games like that. But um, I also understand, you know, veterans who are thinking, why would you go tell the media that? Because we saw how big of a story it became. It became a distraction and every player got asked about it and it was a, it was this whole thing. So I get both sides of it. But, yeah, I've definitely seen that happen where, you know, sometimes it's intentional. A guy will say something and they're trying to send a message and, you know, sometimes they won't, you know, the question will be asked and they're not even necessarily responding to the question. They just had it in their mind that I'm going to say this. I don't really care, you know, what I'm asked. But then there's sometimes where a guy says something and maybe it is taken out of context or they don't understand how much it's going to blow up. I've talked to players about that where we have an interview and then it's, you know, they say something. And then once it's actually transcribed and written out in text and all the context and you know, everything's removed, especially with social media now, where I saw it the other night with LeBron James, and he was talking about the MVP voting. And, you know, they asked him how, if he was still frustrated, he was like, no, don't get it twisted. I'm great. You know, I'm absolutely great. And he was saying like, I'm good. Don't worry. Like, I'm not worried about it anymore. I'm not upset. But immediately it got copied and pasted over to Twitter. And everyone thought he was saying like, I don't care. I'm great. I'm an amazing player, like blah, blah, blah. But that wasn't what it was. If you actually went and looked out and looked for the initial quote so but most people don't do that they're not going to go do their homework and look for the whole quote or find video of the exchange so yeah I mean some of the stuff happens where the guy says something and they're not even thinking it's going to blow up or it's taken out of context and I feel bad for guys in those situations because uh, especially someone like LeBron where every single thing you say is put under the microscope and blows up and is on social media um, so yeah I mean that's definitely something that I'm careful about too when I'm talking with guys because you know, I don't want to put them in that position. And especially some of the guys that I've known for a long time, the last thing I want to do is, you know, cause stress and, and stuff in their life. So, um, but yeah, I've definitely seen that. And, you know, it seems like everybody, since social media is so huge, I mean, everybody wants to be the first one to post, uh, you know, anything that they get. And we're kind of victims of it too, for our social media page, which 
is growing every single day. We try to get information up as soon as possible. And Drew and I have both learned that like, unless I hear it from, from Sham or, or, or Woj, like we shouldn't be putting that stuff up because the fake news is real. Like that really happens a lot. And to go off what you're saying, just from something that happened yesterday uh, that was reported, like, uh, did you guys hear about like the, the Paul George meeting after the game and he said and somebody said that there was eye rolls and and all this stuff but like who's leaking that info first of all and is that even true like I'm not even going to post that I just think people were finding something more about Paul George to post to just piss people off and piss piss people off like me Um, but I'm not buying it like if I don't know who the source is like who's leaking that info yeah whenever especially like around the trade deadline around free agency or if it's a story like that I'm always wondering okay who would leak this because, I mean, I can't imagine one of Paul George's teammates are putting it out there oh. and they were in the room or even like one of the coaches. I don't see why that would get out there. So and I, I usually will wonder, not necessarily with that story, but if there's a trade rumor that's leaked out, for, let's say, I'm always wondering, OK, who would benefit from this being put out there? Is it the team trying to help the guy's stock? Is it another team trying to maybe hurt the guy's stock or hurt the relationship between the player and his current team? You, I always do wonder, you know, who is going to benefit from this and that usually will tell you who's leaking it or who's putting it out there and honestly with that story the Paul George one it did come from Sham Sharania who is a fantastic reporter so it made me wonder because I thought the exact same thing when I saw like who would leak this and was it in front of other people who weren't within the with the team because then maybe I could see someone putting it out there and thinking oh wow this is crazy I'm gonna tell someone but I have a hard time believing someone from the team would actually leak that out there um and yeah I mean it does feel sometimes like you know it's not even just the reporters that do this, but it feels like everyone's kind of just kicking a guy when he's down, like, you know, putting that out there. It's kind of like, I already feel bad for Paul George and everything he's went through. You know, he opened up about his mental health struggles in the bubble. And obviously he had a rough uh, number of games in the playoffs. So, you know, to put that out there and make him look even more foolish, um, <sighs> it makes me wonder, you know, I don't blame Shams at all. Cause if I got that information and it was from a super credible source and, or you confirmed it with multiple sources, you're going to put that out there because we're talking about it. I mean, people right. care about that stuff, but for sometimes the people who leak stuff like that, I, you know, it definitely makes me wonder where that's coming from or what their agenda is. Yeah. And it's funny, like people will post breaking news. Miami's really interested in Giannis. It's like, no shit. Every team in the NBA is interested in Giannis. Like we, we know this, like every team's going to approach him in free agency, you know? Yeah. And- I'm interested in Rihanna breaking news. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> hey, hey uh, so go ahead. Clips. Go oh, ahead. Good. It's you. Oh, I was going to, I was going to transition to the, um, the current status of, of the bubble. I mean, you've been covering the league for so long. This is so, obviously a very unique situation. I was curious with all of the relationships that you've built with the players that were there, what your sense of this whole bubble is from, from maybe a, an insider kind of perspective, because from an outsider perspective as, as a fan and you know, as, a, as someone that reports on things, this is, has definitely been a success. I, I just want to know if that's, if that's similarly how the players that you're that you're in contact with have viewed this bubble um, in, in yeah, that's a great context. question. Yeah, I think everyone's viewing it as a success. The fact that the NBA was able to put this together in a pretty short amount of time—it's very impressive. You know, we haven't had a single positive test from within the bubble, which I think is the biggest thing. You see, um, you know, Major League Baseball was dealing with an outbreak and, and different things like that. So, yeah, I mean, it's probably the safest place in the country right now. Um, initially, whenever I was thinking, okay you know, about going to the bubble or media was talking about it. I was wondering, you know, could that be, is it going to be safe? Because there was some talk about 
employees maybe coming and going or things like that. But it's been a huge success, especially from a health standpoint. Now, when you talk to players, I think they tend to compare it to a normal season, but there's really, it's, it's impossible to have a normal season right now. So that's the hard thing. And I think there is some question on the player side of whether or not this is sustainable. Like next year, could they do a bubble for the entire season? That's where I think you'd run into some issues where, you know, we're seeing right now guys are already, you know, dealing with depression or some different issues within the bubble. If you try to have an entire season in the bubble, I don't know how that would work unless their families with them the entire time. Maybe you take a break. You have a few months in the bubble, take a break, a few months, take a break. I don't know. There, there's been some different discussions like that, but I think uh, the fact that it was just the seeding games, which were, you know, only a couple games and then the playoffs, it made it a little bit easier. But as far as what's going to happen next season, I know the NBA's goal is to have every team back in their arena and try to have as normal of a season as possible, even if there's not fans in uh, attendance. But I don't know how that would work. You know, I'm not sure come next season, come December, uh, I don't know how different things are going to be. So you have the same issues that they ran into in March, if that happens. Now, the NFL has had success. You know, we're seeing that there hasn't been any positive tests. With So if they can figure out a way to do it, that would be great. Because I think that's the biggest question that players have. You know, how long can, will this work? Can we do a bubble for the entire season? And the answer to that is probably no, unless, again, they're able to figure it out where they schedule it way different than a usual season. So, yeah, I'm curious to see how it works out. But I think players were impressed with uh, the safety aspect of it, but also they, they've done a really good job of trying to keep guys entertained in there. And, you know, we've seen a lot of different videos that leaked out where guys are fishing and they're hanging out in the players lounge or, you know, they're getting, uh, they're at the barbershop all together. Like there's, they've done a good job of uh, making sure it's not just, Hey, go to the gym and then go back to your hotel and go to sleep and then back to the gym the next day. Cause I mean, that would be just rough. And that's a lot for your employer to ask of you. I've said that all along where these guys, we, we tend to think of these guys as, you know, video game characters or superheroes, but they are people who are basically being asked by their employer, Hey, leave your family for four months and just focus on work, which is a pretty tough ask, but they've done a pretty good job of making guys, uh, you know, giving guys a number of entertainment options and things like that in the bubble too. letting them bring their families. I know it took a little while because, they had, there was a spacing issue. You know, they wanted to make sure that uh, the bubble wasn't too big. But um, I think the NBA has done a fantastic job considering the circumstances. All right. So, Alex, you know, you wrote a, a really good article about my Clippers the other day. And I'm so tired of talking Clipper basketball with Drew. Having an unbiased opinion would be phenomenal for myself. Uh, I've, I've literally waited my whole life for this basketball team. Um, getting Kawhi and Paul was just so huge for me and for Clipper Nation and going into the playoffs, you know, everybody, a lot of people had us winning the title and at least Clippers, Lakers in the finals. Uh, in true Clipper fashion, we crumbled. All right. It was a, it was a really uh, horrible display of basketball and team effort and chemistry. And I wanted your feeling on it. I want to, I want to know what you think uh, the problem was and who would you blame? You know, I think the biggest issue, just hearing what the players said and what we kind of saw all season long was obviously lack of continuity. But then with that also comes the chemistry. And there were reports during the season, um, you know, going back to what we were talking about, about anonymous sourcing and reports and what to believe, what not to believe. You know, there were multiple reports about this team having chemistry issues. And then we heard Patrick Beverly shot it down. Lou Williams said the guys were literally talking about it and laughing together at the reports because they were so inaccurate. But then sure enough, 
you know, after game seven, Lou Will came out and said, we just didn't have the chemistry. We had the talent, but not the chemistry. And all these guys, Paul George was saying that the chemistry was the issue. And um, Doc Rivers was saying that the team, you know, basically in game seven and in that series as a whole, one team looked like they had been together for years and one team looked like they had just started playing together. So I think there's no question that's one of the biggest issues. So that's why in the article that I wrote that you mentioned, it talked about how, first of all, bringing the team back and having some continuity and working on that chemistry seems like it would be a good approach. And then second with the situation they're in, as far as their cap flexibility and their draft capital, it's not like they can just say, okay, we're not going to resign Montrez Harrell or Marcus Morris. And we're going to go out now and sign this star free agent and this other replacement player. They don't have the money to do that. They can go over the cap to resign Harrell. They can use the non-bird rights to, you know, be able to pay Marcus Morris $18 million, you know, annually. But if they lose those guys, then you're talking about replacing them with mid-level exception type players or veteran minimum type players. And I kind of wrote this in the article, but it's similar to what the Cleveland Cavaliers, uh, the situation they were in years ago when they had Kyrie Irving, LeBron James, Kevin Love, and their salary cap situation was pretty ugly. So their options were lose Tristan Thompson, J.R. Smith, Amon Shumpert, and then try to replace those guys with bargain veterans that are signing for the biannual exception or the veteran minimum, or you just bite the bullet and re-sign those guys, even if they're quote-unquote overpaid, even if you have a big luxury tax bill. And ultimately, they decided, okay, we have a small window to win a championship. We're going to just go all in and pay for these guys. And it worked out. They won a championship the following year after paying Tristan Thompson JR, Iman. So I think that's kind of, if I'm the Clippers, I'd bring this team back, run it back, hope the chemistry is better year two. Uh, because if you lose Harold and Morris and, and like those guys that we're saying, it's going to be really difficult to replace them. So it only becomes more t- you know, difficult to win a championship. But no, I think chemistry continuity, those are the biggest issues, I think. Um, well, there's two things r- real quick. Chemistry to me, like, I don't think, uh, I think the Clippers had friendship chemistry. I think they all got along and liked each other, but that doesn't necessarily transition or translate to playing really good basketball together. Yeah. At having team chemistry, you need to all play together for a, for a complete season, which they didn't. They played. I think they, I think there was eleven games. They all got. To, they were all healthy and playing together. So I don't think uh, internally they had issues with chemistry. I just think it didn't translate to the to the court because you know Montrez and Pat and Lou have been together for they're like best friends. They've been together forever. Paul and Kawhi both obviously respect each other a lot um, and their friends. But I totally agree with you, and I told Drew, uh, we talked about it on the last pod, that I want to run it back one more time. I just don't know if – and we're willing to go into the cap for sure, but yeah. are we willing to pay Montrez $19 million a year? And I don't know if that's worth that. Yeah, it's funny because that's the same question Cleveland kind of had to approach is are we paying overpaying Tristan Thompson? And when you couple – Montrez's uh, value to the team and just what he provides with the fact that replacing him would be near impossible to, to be able to go find another guy that's contributing what he's contributing where he just won six man of the year. He's been amazing the last two seasons to be able to try to replace that with a veteran minimum player or even a mid-level exception player would be really difficult. So, you know, he has some nice leverage going into these negotiations because there really isn't a way for them to say, Hey, we're just going to let you go. We'll sign this guy instead. That guy that they'd be signing would be much worse. So that's kind of the issue. Um, It's the cap situation they're in. And I mean, trying to make moves, like let's say they want to make a trade. We saw them trade for Marcus Morris this year where they coupled their first round pick 
you know, they sent it over to New York. You know, they now you have the issue where due to uh, the Stepien rule, you know, they don't have the ability to trade multiple first round picks in consecutive years. So it's also difficult to approve the team via the draft because they don't have many, you know, many picks going forward because they've traded so many and they don't uh, have the ability to sweeten any offers when it comes to the trade deadline by attaching a first round pick most years. So there's a number of issues where it becomes difficult to improve the roster, which again, just makes me think they should run it back. But I agree with what you were saying before about the chemistry. I think when you talk about this team all year long, we kept hearing, you know, Kawhi's on load management. Paul George had his injury. A lot of guys were hurt. And then we kept hearing, okay, come playoff time, they'll be at full strength and they'll flip the switch. And that doesn't really work. You know, it works for some teams. That's why the Toronto Raptors, their success last year was so surprising. That's why the Lakers success this year with so many new faces has been surprising for whatever reason. There's some groups where you can flip that switch and they just happen to gel very quickly for a lot of teams though, when you have that many new focal points and new role players as well, it's very difficult to, you know, have success in year one, especially when so many guys are out and you're not playing together for a full season. And I agree with you too, you know, being friends off the court doesn't necessarily matter as much as the on-court chemistry that only comes with time. Um, And I think another thing to mention too is I think when you have that, you have those relationships with guys over years and you know each other and your brothers, you can communicate differently. You know, you're more resilient. The Boston Celtics just had that blow-up argument between Jalen Brown and Marcus Smart in the locker room. Those guys have been together for years, so you can bounce back quickly from that. And at the end of the day, your family so okay, we're, we're good now. Don't worry about it. And if anything, it sometimes even benefits the team because maybe some things that haven't been said are now put out there in the open and everyone can kind of respond. When you've been playing together for, you know, less than a year and you don't each other that well sometimes you don't want to say those things and if there is an argument or there is something like that it's sometimes harder to bounce back from it because you don't have those years and years of positive experiences to balance it out so I think that's part of it too that communication and those relationships I think help teams when they're in those situations where you know maybe if this team did have those years of experience and that brotherhood when they're starting to fall apart after the series is 3-1 and they start struggling, maybe the communication is different. Maybe they have those honest conversations. Maybe there is chairs being thrown in the locker room, but it ultimately benefits the team. You know, I think that's something that comes with time too, in addition to being smoother on the court. We're kind of seeing that with Denver though. These are, this is a group of young guys who have been playing together for a while now, and they're only going to get better. Their chemistry is exactly what beat the Clippers, you know? And like I, like I mentioned to Drew on the last show, I was more upset as a Clipper fan at the, the remarks that Paul George made after the game, saying how we didn't come into the season thinking it was championship or bust. And I took that to heart because if you're not playing for a championship, especially with this team, uh, then, then, then what are we playing for, you know? Yeah. And I just didn't like how nonchalant it was after the game. I had mentioned, like, we all used to make fun of Embiid uh, for crying after losing in the playoffs, but I'd rather have that than – than Paul George just writing it off as, oh, we'll just come back and run it back next year. I completely agree. I I think I always felt bad when, you know, guys that are out there crying got crap on social media because I agree. That's the guy I want on my team. And I'd probably be in that if I'm out there play an entire season and then you go out like that, I would be that guy that's on the court crying. So I always related to those guys. And I agree with you. You'd much rather see that than, you know, the guy being nonchalant. But one thing I will say is I do think it's a defense mechanism. You see that whenever guys first enter the NBA, they're usually on a lottery team that sucks and they lose a lot of games and they're basically by their veterans. Hey, you can't take a loss 
very, very hard, you know, never get too high, never get too low. When you win, you don't want to celebrate too much. And when you lose, just, you know, go on to the next game and don't focus on it. Because if you, if, if they were caring as much as we were every single night and, you know, then if this is their entire life, this is their, this is their job, you know, they would be just a mess to be around. So that is something that guys, I think when they enter the NBA, they're just as raw and having a really hard time dealing with losses and celebrating after wins. But I think that eventually guys kind of learn not to do that for the good of the team. And so that they, uh, can just focus on the next game. And I also think, you know, if you're Paul George, I do think, again, it's a defense mechanism. I'm just saying, oh, well, you know, we always knew that it was going to be difficult. I mean, yeah, but a few months ago, you were telling Kevin Hart in an interview that this is a championship team and that that's the expectation. So I think he was probably just hurting and, you know, just saying that. But I also know from seeing so many, being in so many of those locker rooms and talking to guys after those losses, so many guys just shut down and just are on the next game or on the next season because they don't want to, you know, they also don't want to showcase that emotion and then be made fun of on social media. So there's another aspect of it too. You know, Paul George, didn't he delete his comments on Instagram or something like that? He, I saw- he, tur- he turned off his IG for the playoffs after his three horror, the pandemic P once pandemic P hit. He yeah. Went silent. So and- he may just be thinking, I need to just say whatever it can get out of this interview and not, you know, break down crying because I'm going to get so much crap on social media. Like who knows what's going through his head. So Alex, I, I had to shut off my social media because of all the shit that I get. I had to go zero dark 30 for two days. It's too much, man. It's a lot. And I don't get the paycheck that Paul George gets. Yeah, no, I, I agree with that. I, like I said, when we first joined, uh, when I first joined this call with you, I said, you're in the toughest position because not only are you dealing with this, like all our Clippers fans, you literally have to go podcast with a Lakers fan who's rubbing it in your face constantly, including the first thing that he said when we joined this show. <laughs> I know. So, this is what I'm t- harassed, bro. I get harassed hey. on this show. This is you should be used to it by now, brother. You should be I, used to it by now. I am. That's why I don't make it. You know, look, I'm still Clipper Nation to the fullest. I'm not going anywhere. Um, Hold on, I, I, Alex. Your, your point about the uh, the 2015 uh, Cavs, I think, is is spectacular. I think that is so spot on. Uh, I want to go back to that because I think the Clippers did everything right as far as trying to take advantage of these small windows, like the NBA dictates. You have to leverage everything you can to try and bring in as many superstars as you can for these little blitzes, right? All these teams are building, building, building. They finally get the stars, whether it be the Clippers or, you know, Toronto, Milwaukee, Philadelphia is a great example of this as well, where, you know, when they have that window, it's important to just put everything into it and try for everything that they possibly can. So we can't fault the Clippers for doing that. And I do think based on all the information that you shared in your article and, and now just in the pod, their only real option is to run it back. I don't really see many other options if, yeah. if they truly are still searching for a championship, which we all believe them to be. Um, I do think, though, it's very easy for that scenario, whether, whether or not you come out with a championship, to turn into the 2020 Cavs, right? So, you know, four years removed, they have a championship, but now they, they have they leveraged everything. Obviously, Le- LeBron leaving was a big deal. The Clippers are going to be very similarly faced with that kind of situation. Let's say they win it next year. Paul George and Kawhi are both, you know, uh, they have their player options and potentially free agents after that. It's unfortunate the way that it all went down, but I just don't see how they could have tried anything different or anything better than, than you know, what happened. Yeah, I completely agree with you. I think, you know, we see that in the NBA a lot where if you have an opportunity to land a star player, much less two star players, you almost have to go for it. And when it pays off, like we saw with Toronto last year, where their swing for the fences move led to a championship. And then even though Kawhi left, 
they won a title. So whenever it works, you don't hear the criticism. But and I kind of mentioned that in the article, if they win their first championship in franchise history, then, you know, everyone involved is a genius and they look so smart and it was all worth it. If the team breaks up and they struggle for another year and then Kawhi Leonard and Paul George opt out, then all of a sudden people are saying, what were you thinking? You mortgaged your future. Now, not only are they the 2020 Cavs potentially, they're the 2020 Cavs without Colin Sexton, without Darius Garland, without Kevin Porter uh, Jr. I mean, then you're talking about them having so many picks that have been traded away and they're all unprotected. They're all unprotected. Alex, so can you just crazy. stop? Can you stop, please? <laughs> this is just look, man. I can't go another ten years, okay? I cannot I go another ten years like this. There is no rebuild. The Miami Heat lost their first year. We need to come back next year with just some grit. I'm done talking about the Clippers and you giving me all these horrible facts, Alex. I don't want to hear this anymore. <laughs> I, I hear you. And I told you this before we started recording, but I'm a Tampa Bay Buccaneers fan. So I understand what it's like to have year after year of struggles. Now we do have one championship in our franchise history, but I'm almost this year, we, we land Tom Brady, Raul Gronkowski, you know, all these big names. So I'm almost bracing myself for a letdown because I'm so used to it as a Bucks fan. I'm like, I'm not going to do this again. I'm not going to get my hopes up. And then all of a sudden come playoff time, I'm super bummed and frustrated. So let me just say, I totally understand. I can relate to you right now, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I think at the end of the day, what it comes down to is, this team went all in on this group. They knew what that entailed. They knew it could lead to a dynasty if it's, you know, the best case scenario or a really crappy future with not many draft picks and much flexibility. So because they went all in, they really don't have much way to wiggle out of it now. Now you could argue they could fire Doc Rivers, but at the end of the day, what does that really accomplish? Now you're going to a season where you're still not on the same level continuity or chemistry wise as some of the other teams that you're competing with. And you have a new head coach who's trying to install a new system and get to know the players and all that. So that's a whole other layer that's difficult. So I think just like you said, the best thing to do is run it back, you know, go into luxury tax. Steve Ballmer has been extremely aggressive. And, you know, that is one thing where if you're the Clippers, you have to feel pretty good about the situation you're in because you went from having arguably the worst owner in professional sports to the best maybe. Um, so they're in a good position. They have, you know, they have the stars. I'd much rather be in the Clippers position right now and as risky as, as it is than some of these other franchises that are looking for that first star because that first star is the hardest person to get. When you're in LA, when you have Kawhi and PG, when you have Steve Ballmer as your owner and you have all these different factors, people are going to want to play with you. So again, you know, during next season when there's buyouts or guys getting waived, they're going to consider the Clippers. I think they're in an okay position. Now, long-term, they, they definitely mortgage their future and their flexibility to make this happen. But, you know, I, I agree with Drew. You have to do that. You know, you have, if there's a chance for you to win a championship and you've been a team with the Clippers that's a laughingstock and not competing with the Lakers, you have to do that. So I think next season, hopefully we get the Lakers-Clippers matchup that we've all been waiting for and I know you guys have been waiting for because that would just be amazing to be able to listen to this podcast during that series and hear the trash talk. Um, this season was obviously uh, very unfortunate, but maybe this is what they needed to have those honest conversations, to come back next year stronger and learn from it. I mean, how many times have we seen organizations have disappointing losses and they come back next year way better for it? So while it sucks right now, maybe this is the best thing that could have happened in the long run. And maybe 10 years from now, when we're watching a documentary about the Clippers dynasty, they're pointing to this moment as the reason. Now we're talking. Happened. Now yeah, I can we're talking. Yeah. I like this. I, like I thought you'd like that one. I thought you'd like that. <laughs> I just better be on that documentary, dude, please. <laughs> You're at the parade just crying. <laughs> well, Drew and I had been saying that, like, this is 
so Clipper, like this 2020 would be the perfect year for the Clippers to win because there would be no parade, right? I told, <laughs> I told Drew that he'd have to, I'd have to get in my truck, put me in the back, he'll be driving, and I'll just go down Del Mar Street, which is the main street in San Clemente, and I'll just, I'll have my own freaking parade, you know? <laughs> no, um, that would be very 2020. That's a good point. I want to get your quick take uh, on your thoughts on small ball and the Rockets because Drew and I are not big uh, Rockets fans at all. Uh, we actually kind of like watching them uh, collapse as much as people like watching the Clippers collapse. I wanted to get your take on what, what do you think Houston will, will do moving forward uh, just with everything that they have going on right now. Yeah, you know, I, I'm very curious. I think they basically looked at their roster as it was constructed and thought we're not going to be able to compete with the top teams in the Western Conference with, you know, Clint Capella and our current setup. Now, maybe if they got the right center, they would be able to shift away from the small ball and, and go with a more traditional lineup. But I think it's one of those things where, and it's funny because we used to hear this about teams that were, you know, really fast paced and shooting threes, you know, it wins a lot of games in the regular season, but how does it translate to the playoffs? Can you win a championship playing that way? And that's now what we're hearing with, you know, the Rockets and, and small ball. and I think it's interesting, you know, I think Daryl Morey is very smart. I will say that. I, I think, you know, people disagree with him and they think he relies too much on analytics and they bring out these different arguments, but I think he is very smart. And I think he typically zigs when everyone else is zagging. And I think it could work with the right personnel. I think Robert Covington did a fantastic job and PJ Tucker did a fantastic job. You know, I, they definitely exceeded my expectations. Let me say that, you know, I thought this would be just a horrible experiment that never, that didn't work at all, but they exceeded my expectations. And I think it's tough because the personnel that they have, um, I think it fits their team pretty well. There's a lot of teams that I don't think could do this. I think it would just be horrible and it would never work, but with their personnel, it does make a bit more sense and I, I think teams do have trouble with it. You know, there are some teams that match up well against it and it looks like, you know, and everyone wonders why would Houston do this? But then there's certain matchups where it looks really smart and they dominate. And so, I mean, I, I kind of see both sides of it. And it's funny because at All-Star Weekend, it was, I, I was there this past year uh, and it was right after they had made these moves and kind of mixed their team up. And so I had interviewed a number of former centers. Like I, I had Greg Oden on my podcast Jason Collins, um, who else? I, uh, Sean Marion, he's not a center, but I had just a lot of former players in my podcast and we talked about it and they were all so confused and saying this makes no sense and I don't like it. And uh, a lot of them were also making the you know valid point that this hurts the center as a player, you know? And I saw, I saw Draymond Green say something similar during the playoffs. He pointed out, if you're a center or you're a big man, you should be rooting against this because this could really be bad for us and our earning potential and all that going forward. And that's pretty interesting. But I think it's one of those things where it's so early on, a lot of people are just confused by it and think there's no way this can work. But I, I, I think with the right pieces, it could in the right team and the right matchups, that's part of it too, making sure – uh, maybe you run into the right teams uh, in the playoffs and it happens to work out. So I, I kind of see both sides of it. Um, I totally understand your guys' point because, again, there are some matchups where it, it's, you know, it fails spectacularly. I, <laughs> I think, don't know. I see both you know, sides. Unfortunately for Houston, they finally constructed the team that might have been able to compete and beat the Warriors – and then they just never had to come up against them, right? I mean, it seems like yeah. all these years they were finally trying to just figure out the exact lineup that they could cause the most problem for the Warriors, and then they end up in the situation where the Warriors are completely irrelevant and they have to face all these big men. Right, uh, you know, yeah. it, it's really hard to predict what you're going to have to come up against, you know? 
Absolutely. Yeah, that's that's a great point. And we see that sometimes we see that in past years, too, where if you try to, you know, build your team to beat one squad that you're expecting to run to, it doesn't typically work out very often. Now, if that team is versatile and they can play a bunch of different styles and maybe it'll work out. But we, we've heard that a lot where, oh, this team is perfectly constructed to beat so and so. And then something happens and all of a sudden they're screwed. So, yeah, I'm not a big fan of that way of building things. Um, I think this was more you're right. I mean, I think they definitely um, had that in mind, but I think this is more just them looking at their roster and thinking, what's our ceiling if we just, you know, stand pat and we have Flint Capella and we don't make these moves. And I think they thought we'd be, you know, they'd probably be a first round exit or not very solid as a team. Um, so I'm curious to see kind of where they go from here. I'm curious, you know, on the head coaching front, what happens next? Because I think Mike D'Antoni is a huge part of why that worked offensively um, at least. Um, and I mean, it's funny because D'Antoni's had some stints where he's been really, really good. And then he's had some stints where you wonder if he's ever going to get a head coaching job again. Um, so I, I, I don't know. I think D'Antoni's going to get hired somewhere else. You know, they've talked about Indiana and different, you know, organizations that are showing interest in him. Um, but yeah, I'm curious what they do as far as this offseason and with their head coaching job, because that's going to be pretty, you know, impactful. What if, if D'Antoni in uh, for the Pelicans? Yeah, I think that is very interesting. Um, I think entering this season, they went from being – everyone was focusing on them as like a young, rebuilding, developmental team. And then once they got J.J. Redick and Derek Favors, everyone's like, okay, wait a second, maybe they could actually win this year. And then, you know, it didn't work out that way. Um, they, they still played very well, and their young guys look great. Um, so I'm wondering, okay, are they going to now say – we kind of got ahead of ourselves. Let's pump the brakes and get a developmental coach. Or do they say, look, we want to win now. We want to bring in that kind of coach with these players. I'm not really sure, you know, and, and there's also, you have to look at the relationships too. Like does someone like David Griffin go after a Ty Lu, who he worked with in Cleveland and knows very well. And not only does he know Lou well, but if Ty Lu gets the job, he's probably going to bring in some of the same assistants. So there's just that familiarity all around. Uh, or does he go in a different direction? Um, I think David Griffin is an amazing executive. I have a ton of respect for him and what he's been able to do. So I think he'll make a smart decision. I think they're casting a pretty wide net. Uh, so they're going to talk to a lot of different people because when you have Zion and that young core, it's a very attractive job. You know, you're, you're coming in as a coach and you're excited to coach that group. So there's not many executive or uh, not many candidates that they could, uh, that they're not going to be able to get on the phone right now. They're going to have their picks. So I'm curious to see what they do too. D'Antoni could be interesting there for sure. I, I would, you know, this is me just completely making this up right now. So for all those people that are listening, this is not breaking news. And I don't want to put any words into Alex's mouth, of course. Uh, but you mentioned relationships. And D'Antoni has a fantastic relationship with Steve Nash, first-time head coach in, in Brooklyn. Obviously, D'Antoni's not going to get the same amount of money that, that he would as a head coach if he went there. And they already have Jacques Vaughn, you know, geared up as the, you know, secondary coach. But who knows? Maybe D'Antoni decides to take a step back from, you know, having all of the pressure on him. He is getting a little bit older. Maybe he steps in not necessarily as an assistant coach, but in some form um, gets involved with the Nets organization. I think that could be interesting, too. That's interesting because he does have the Nash relationship. My hot thing take, Drew. Hot take. If he, yeah, if he does it, I think it's hard once you make that transition over to, to get back. assistant to get back. But I mean, and he's also 69, about to be 70 years old. So he may be thinking, look, this is my last contract. I want to 
be a head coach and then just retire. Um, and sometimes ego gets in the way too, where some of these guys are thinking, I'm not going to be an assistant. I'm definitely not going to go somewhere where I'm not the lead assistant because I'm Mike D'Antoni. Look what I've done. Look at my resume. So, I mean, I'm not, I don't know if D'Antoni's that way, but I just know it's a natural thing. If you're a person that has a great, you know, tons of totally. success, you know, there could be some ego there too, but I don't know. And I think the fact, if he wasn't getting mentioned as a candidate for some of these head coaching vacancies, I think maybe that would be something that is considered. And look, that would be amazing for the Nets because I think he would do a fantastic job. Uh, and I mean, you're someone like Steve Nash who's coming in as, you know, you have zero coaching experience. He was a player developmental guy, but didn't have any coaching experience. Having D'Antoni next to you on the bench is the best thing you could ask for. I mean, we saw that with Steve Kerr when he took over for the Warriors. He surrounded himself with Alvin Gentry and Ron Adams and different guys that could make up for his lack of experience. So I think uh, the fact that, you know, Jock Vaughn doesn't have a ton of experience either. I had him in Orlando and he really struggled those first few years where, you know, veterans in the locker room weren't really taking him seriously. And some of the younger guys, they didn't really know better because they was they were new to the NBA, but he had a hard time where some of the veterans went from Stan Van Gundy, who is way different as a coach, and you know, say what you will about Stan, but the guy is really, really smart when it comes to X's and O's and those kind of things. So going from that to Jock, I think was kind of a shock for some of the veteran players. So um Jock has obviously gotten much better in the years since and has developed some experience, but yeah, I mean, D'Antoni on that Brooklyn bench would just be so amazing for Nash and would give him such a boost. I just don't know if he'd be willing to accept that. But if it's not D'Antoni, Nash and the Nets should be looking for as many experienced people as possible to surround him because that's really the key to, you know, young coaches and inexperienced coaches succeeding, the guys that are around them. So we got to talk about Drew's squad. We got to talk about the Lakers right now. They're up 2-0 on Denver. Heartbreaker for Denver last night. Uh I, you know, I was telling Drew before uh, before you hopped on that, you know, after Jokic made that, first of all, first of all, Jokic now doesn't know how to shoot a three and doesn't want to take a three. But in, but in the first round, he's just he's Reggie Miller, okay? And now and now in this series, he's just second guessing everything that he's doing. But uh, in that fourth, it's Dwight quarter, Howard, Dwight Howard's in his brain, bro. Dwight Howard's in his brain, man. Well, it's crazy because. I, start, I, I saw them dancing on the sideline early in the game. J.R. Smith was just going buck wild, doing all the dancing and talking. And then I'm like, oh, dude, they're going to lose this one. They're definitely going to lose this one. And uh, <laughs> they blew their lead. And then all of a sudden the fourth quarter comes around and it's AD versus Jokic. Jokic makes that crazy behind the back, just tip in. And then last play, well, supposedly last play, I was so shocked that LeBron gives it up and, and it goes to Caruso for the game winner, which was just so, so shocking to me. Um, but, but Drew, you got, you got the victory three by Anthony Davis, great run play by Vogel. Uh, you know, what's your thoughts on that game? What's, what's your thoughts? Well, honestly, I, I was sitting here as the lead got smaller and smaller and I'm going, okay, this is, this is a, this is a very similar site. I mean, we just saw this happen in, in the Utah series, we saw it happen against the Clippers. Like, here we go. The Nuggets, they're come back. They're a second half team. Um, and, you know, luckily we were, we just, we did just enough to stave off uh, that comeback from being completed. That is something that we have to continue to do. This is, this is what the Nuggets do. They, they, they try their best in the first half. Sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. And the second half is when they come out and they actually start playing their best basketball. So I expect us to, to have to do that you know, in, in the rest of the games in the series, if we want to win the series. Um, I was very pleased with the fact that we, we were able to just at least keep that lead and, and stop. I mean, eventually, I guess the, the Nuggets ended up getting up by one point with whatever, how many seconds left in the fourth quarter. But maintaining our lead, at least as small as it got, was, I think, very, very important. Um, and honestly, dude, 
you know, Anthony Davis hit a hell of a shot. And as much as we want to, you know, praise Anthony Davis and praise Frank Vogel for the play call and all that stuff, if that doesn't go in, people are definitely going the other way saying that's a terrible play call. Like you have Anthony Davis and LeBron, you're only down by one. Why would you call a three for, you know, your son? Uh, there'd be eye rolling in the locker room for sure. That would be, that would be <laughs> a hot take, hot take. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm amazed that Anthony Davis hit it. Um, I, and especially all the stories coming out after the fact about how he yelled Kobe afterwards, all of that is just Lakers lore. That's just another legendary story to add to the, huge wall of legendary stories that we have for the franchise. So I couldn't be happier. We're up 2-0. We definitely, I don't think we deserve to be up 2-0. I think it was kind of miraculous. I thought Denver did enough to win that game, but I can't complain. Yeah, I think it, my thing, when I, was, when I was watching that, this Nuggets team is just so resilient. I was so impressed that they were able to come back in that game. But like you said, that's what they do. And I think, I think Dave DeFore said this uh, after game one. And it seems like what this Denver team does is that first game, even the first two games sometimes, they're kind of getting acclimated and learning. It's a fact-finding mission. That's what Dave said. And I think that's very accurate where, you know, they feel like they're always in the series because now they've been able to overcome two, three, one deficits. So I think they get better as the series goes on and as the game goes on too, just because it's adjustments and things that they're kind of figuring out. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I was really impressed that they were able to make that a game. Um, I'm still waiting for Jamal Murray to have one of his blow up 40, 50 point games because he's been amazing in the bubble. And that's interesting too. I think the bubble adds something interesting to this because first of all, no one's having to go back and forth and play in front of, you know, rival fans and, you're not traveling. So I think some of these stars are fresher than usually would be. And I think the other thing that we, we did an article on this at basketballnews.com where Vin Del Negro talked about why offense was up in the bubble and scoring was up and why certain offensive players have had so much success. I think the fact that they're playing on the same baskets in the same rims every single night, I think that actually really helps where you're not having to change every series and go back and forth from arena to arena. Um, and they also say that it's kind of a shooter's gym because the court's surrounded by black curtains. So it helps the depth perception. Um, you don't have the fans screaming, obviously. And then these guys, instead of flying, you know, getting on a red-eye flight, they're going back to the hotel room 10 minutes away. So guys are really, really well-rested. So there's a lot of factors that go into it. But the point is, Jamal Murray's been having an insane uh, postseason and seeding games. He was amazing back then, too. So I'm curious to see, if, you know, when he's going to have one of those blow-up games and if he can just, you know, put this team on his back. But Jokic has been incredible as well. That end-of-the-game stretch where he just kept – scoring was amazing uh, but yeah that shot was was fantastic they're lucky that mason plumley decided to play hide and seek on the final play instead of actually play defense um but what about uh, dozier what if could dozier hit a free throw the guy yeah. was horrific horrific man yeah so wait, i have a question are you while you're watching these games are you rooting for denver and just rooting against the lakers every single play no so i we, we discussed this no i'm not that i'm not that clipper fan i'm really okay. not i had mentioned that uh that I want the Lakers to win it for Kobe. It's the first time in my life that hmm. I've said that. But inside, it'd be really nice if the Lakers lost to Denver because then it could be like, see, you lost to him too. Maybe I could, it could take a little bit of the pain away. But I, I have, I'm not emotionally invested at all in any of this, but it would be nice to win it for Kobe this year. Like, I, I also don't understand why the Lakers don't wear the Mamba jerseys every single game. Seriously, that's incredible. Just, They're unstoppable when they wear them, and especially apparently if you yell out Kobe when you're making crazy shots. So it's pretty amazing. <laughs> okay, so I have, I, have, I have two more questions. One, do you have a, do you have a vote for any of the uh, MVPs or anything like that? Do you have a vote? I don't, unfortunately. 
who but would I have you, plenty of thoughts on it. <laughs> who, would, who would you take – if you had the vote this year, who was your vote? Yeah, I think it was Giannis. I think once the playoffs started and the Bucks lost and the seeding games, obviously, I think people started thinking, oh, it has to be LeBron. And it really helped his argument. But I think if we're talking about the season as a whole and looking back at, you know, the regular season before the pandemic and all that, what Giannis was doing was just unprecedented. He was playing at another level. And I think it's always tough, too. Whenever a guy wins MVP the year before and then improves on their stats and does even better, we see that all the time. You know, we saw it with Steve Nash. And the voters have a really hard time thinking, okay, well, we gave it to him last year. He's even better now. So how do we justify giving it to someone else? Um, And I think there's also LeBron fatigue. We see that all the time. You know, if there's someone else that has an equal or maybe even a little bit better case, then LeBron's going to have a hard time winning it because I think they feel like we give it to LeBron so much, we should just mix it up. I think we saw that especially when he first went to Miami and he was kind of the villain and we saw Derrick Rose get it that year. I think Rose was amazing that season, but it almost felt like it was just LeBron wasn't an option. So who are the other candidates? So um, yeah, I mean, I, I would have went Giannis and I think what LeBron did this season is insane at his age. I mean, I know father time's undefeated, but he's putting up a hell of a fight and I've been super impressed. Uh, but yeah, I, I would have went Giannis and I think what he did this year was just ridiculous. And if they advance in the playoffs, I think that conversation is different. Now, I will say the NBA does have a problem where they don't do a great job of defining what MVP is. They don't say, is it the best player on the best team? Is it the guy that's most dominant? Is it the guy where if he gets, if he's out for the season, the team's going to be impacted the most? We don't have a clear rubric to grade on. So everyone has different things. I know Ramona Shelburne came out and said that, you know, she's more of a narrative based voter. We have people that are more analytic based. We have people that take MVP and, you know, think something different than the voter next to them. So I don't know. I I have a hard time. I, I feel like MVP needs to be more clearly defined. And honestly, all the awards, like most improved player should be more clearly defined too, because sometimes it's a guy that's already star that makes the biggest jump. Sometimes it's a guy that struggled and now all of a sudden he's a key contributor. Sometimes it's Hito Turkoglu who has been around forever and just has a big jump. So I don't know. It's confusing. Um, they need to do a better job of defining what the awards are and what the criteria is for each award. Um, you've worked for a lot of different people. You've been in this game 15 years. I want to know just why you made the jump. What made you – make the jump to basketballnews.com and maybe tell them a little bit about what we're doing over there. Yeah, absolutely. So I was really impressed with the vision for basketballnews.com. You know, I had worked at Hoops Hype and USA Today Sports and it was an amazing job. I was there for four years and I love those guys and we ended on really good terms. I'm still friends with all of them. But whenever I heard from, you know, Scott and who's our CEO and Chad, who's the founder, I really loved the vision that they had. And basically their idea was to put together a website where we have, you know, top journalists, but then also player contributors who are coming on and doing podcasts and writing articles and doing videos. Uh, and they had a very ambitious vision where they wanted to create long form content like web series and documentaries and, you know, be able to have them on the site. But then also there would be times where, you know, we're putting them on Hulu or Netflix and things like that. You know, it's not just the vision. It's the fact that it's realistic and they can actually do these things. So their goal is basically to build out a website and have written content from journalists and players, but then also have this podcast network, which is where you guys come in. You know, the podcast network, I'm super excited about it. They want to be able to uh, have 10 podcasts on this network uh, by the end of year one. Um, You know, we're 
halfway there at this point and we're back or actually going to be adding a few more very soon, which I'm very excited about. But yeah, the idea there is just to have this network of awesome people, some players, some journalists, some fans, some entertainers, just being able to talk hoops. Uh, some of the shows may, you know, have basketball elements, but then they're also going to focus on other things as well. Um, so I think there's just so many different cool things that they want to do from the articles to the podcast network, the video that they're going to be putting out and the long form content is going to be amazing. You know, we've seen that's kind of where things are headed in this business. People want to see web series and, and stuff like that. So I'm excited about that as well. Uh, and then, yeah, the players we've been able to add is what makes me so excited because we have James Posey, we have Vinny Del Negro, we have Aton Thomas, um, Troy Brown Jr. from the Washington Wizards. We're about to add two or three more players, which is very exciting. Uh, that should probably be happening here in the next week or two. So, uh, and then we're actually adding three or four more writers too, uh, including one really notable name. Um, and that's probably happening tomorrow. So I'm very excited about that. Um, so yeah, I mean, honestly, I think with this business, what I've always kind of felt is that just produce really cool content and people are going to notice. Put together a really talented team and you're going to do great things. So that was really what made me want to come work here and be chief content officer. They basically said, you know, we're going to give you the resources to build your team that you want to build and bring in different journalists and players. And that was awesome. I mean, I was really excited about that. So it's been very busy over the last few months, just having tons of conversations with players and writers and figuring out who were the best pieces. Um, and I think we found players that are super passionate about this. You know, a lot of these guys played in the NBA for 10, 12, 13 years. So they didn't need a gig like this. They have plenty of money and they could just golf every day if they really wanted to. But instead they want to tell stories and talk about their career and analyze the current NBA players and teams. So uh, we got guys that I think are really passionate about this and are going to do a great job. So I'm really excited. I think the podcast network is going to be a big success. And I, I was really glad you guys actually joined before I did. I think you were one of the first podcasts on. So sure. in my initial call with them, you know, they had mentioned that you guys were, were on the network and I went and listened to, you know, some of your episodes and I was impressed. And I thought that was really cool because the big thing too, is having a lot of different perspectives. So, you know, if I'm providing the journalism perspective and doing interviews and then players are giving their own personal experiences and having player to player conversations, you know, the voice of the fan and the really entertaining, you know, funny podcast, that's really needed. I think you guys provide that. So, uh, and then now we're talking about expanding that even further. And, you know, we just acquired a podcast called Dishes and Dimes. That's an all-female podcast. And we're talking with executives and coaches. They're funny. About, they're funny, dude. They're hilarious. Damn. I literally, I mean, I, I love their stuff. They're all Raptors fans. People that don't know, they're Raptors fans, but they know so much about the NBA. They're super knowledgeable, but they're so entertaining. And they have great chemistry. They're all really good friends. So, you know, they're kind of like you guys. They're always teasing each other. And, you know, some of them are, you know, DeMar DeRozan stands. Some of them are Kyle Lowry stands and they right. fight and bicker. Uh, but it's hilarious. It's a really good podcast. So we brought them on and they kind of have the same voice of the fan type feel. Um, so yeah, I mean, I think at the end of the day, just we're putting some really talented people within this company. And I think we're going to be able to do some really cool things. So I'm really excited. We are too, man. We worked really hard for, for three years and we knew, you know, as soon as Scott hit us up that we wanted to be with uh, basketballnews.com. So everybody should just tune in, check out the, check out the website. I have one last question though, Alex, Shoot. you know, been working hard for three years, Drew and I, and we, we don't have a source. I need a source, bro. Will you, will you be my source, my incognito source? Just to say that I have a source. Can you be that guy? I would be honored to be your source. I will be your off the record anonymous league source. Yes. Uh, we did it, Drew. We did it. We have a source. <laughs> we have a source. I love um, it. 
hey, dude, this was so awesome. And I hope we can do this more. Like, I would really love to have you on more if we can. Yeah, let's do it. I'm, I think this was a lot of fun. You guys know your stuff. You're really funny. And cool. if you don't reach out, I'll be offended. <laughs> <laughs> we will definitely reach out. We, we do definitely want to give you, obviously, the platform to plug all the stuff that you have going on as well. I, obviously, Basketball News is a, is a main con, you know, piece of that. But go ahead and let people know where they can find you, socials and all that good stuff. Yeah, you can follow me on Twitter at AlexKennedyNBA. Uh, all my work is on BasketballNews.com. Uh, I host the Alex Kennedy podcast, so that's something that's on BasketballNews.com, but also Spotify, Apple Podcast, all those different platforms. And then, yeah, my articles are, are on the site as well, so check those out. And then soon I'll be doing some video stuff too, so you'll see those on Twitter and YouTube and all that, but yeah. Hey, Alex, we really appreciate you coming on the show, man. Uh, we're going to do this again. Uh, we take them out with a song, though, Alex. This week's song, Jedi Mind Trick, Death Toll Rising. It's a banger. Turn it up. It's the follow-through with Clips. And Drew, Drew, we're ghosts. Yeah. Kobe. You talking gun play? Well, let's play with them guns. See, I lot all night ugly and you stay in the slums. Patsy ends up take flights while you begging with bums. The coast of the black virgin is safe in the sun. Heckler Ricard's black ski mask and an onion. This motherfucker crack a smile like he laughing at son. I take his body mind hard like I'm snatching it from him. He ain't smart enough to understand assassins is coming and blasting his son. That something puts you in a tomb. And that whopper goes, I shoot through the room. I do them a goon, strap a two twos in the womb. Seeing Pazzy spell something, then it's usually doom. See, it's gonna get ugly if you violate my space. The six pack click clack barrel in his face. Them chump bow boys will hit you with foul warning. Bring pops to your crib like this was a house